Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So it's become an article of faith in our modern world that if you're feeling depressed, unmotivated, angry, anxious, well, what you need to do is think about why you're feeling that way or go talk to a therapist and try to figure out why you're having these emotions or these feelings. And then once you do that, it will magically solve things. Well, what if doing that, thinking about your feelings all the time, actually makes the problem worse? Well, that's the argument my guests they make in their book. It's called F Feelings, and yes, that F is what you think it stands for. Uh, it's a father and daughter team. Uh, the father is named Michael Bennett. He's actually a psychiatrist. The daughter is Sarah Bennett, and she's a comedian writer. And they teamed up to write, uh, you know, despite the title, the, the, the controversial title, um, it's there on purpose. It's one of the most straightforward, practical, no foo-foo books about managing your psychology and your emotional life that I've read. And today on the podcast, Michael and Sarah and I discuss, you know, why you shouldn't think about your feelings so much, why it can be unproductive, what to do about anger, what to do about anxiety, how to approach self-improvement so that it's actually productive and not masturbatory, what to do about addiction and things like that. A really great podcast with a lot of practical information. Uh, so take notes. I think you're going to like this. And after the show's over, make sure to check out the show notes for links to resources, studies that we mentioned in the podcast. You can find that at aom.is slash ffeelings. So just ffeelings, all one word. And as always, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review of the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher if you've enjoyed it. And just a heads up, don't worry. Uh, even though the book is called F Feelings, we don't swear in this podcast. So uh, you don't have to bleep it out or anything like that or not listen to it if that sort of thing offends you. Uh, we keep it pretty straightforward and uh, practical. So without further ado, Michael Bennett, Sarah Bennett, and why you shouldn't really worry about your feelings so much. Okay, Sarah and Michael Bennett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So you all are the uh, the daughter-father team who wrote the book called F Feelings. Um, it's about it's a, it's a, it's a book about uh, dealing with life's problems uh, from a, a shrink's perspective. I'm curious, why did you two decide? So Michael, you're the shrink. Uh, Sarah, you are a comedy writer. What was the genesis? How did you guys decide? Was it over like Christmas dinner one day you decided we're going to write a book uh, about, you know, psychotherapy or psychiatry? Uh, well, it was over many childhood dinners, actually. Both my parents are psychiatrists um, and they would, you know, bring their work home. They would talk about cases with each other, obviously within the HIPAA guidelines, um, but they would always ask for advice. You know, what would you do with this patient? What, what do, you, do you think I did the right thing, et cetera? 
so uh, I was raised around talk of mental illness and problem solving, really, because after my parents worked in a mental hospital, um, they both worked more in in private facilities. My mother ran an inpatient program. My father was in private practice. So it was more about hearing two professional advice givers sort of talking shop. And this phrase of blank feelings is something my father would say, um, both around the dinner table and to his patients. So at one point as an adult, I was living in LA and trying to work, but there was a big writer strike. So there was no work for anybody. And I was looking for something to do. And I realized uh, finally, maybe it's time to help my dad write some of his ideas down. He's had a lot of patients over the years. He'd say, tell him, I wish I'd written that down. A lot of them were pretty ADD and wouldn't remember once they left his office or in the heat of an argument with a spouse or a parent, they wouldn't remember his advice. So I just saw this opportunity to help him put that advice down on paper and make sure that his sense of humor remained intact. Because if you don't know that he's trying to be funny, um, you might just think he's a massive jerk. So that's my job, is to make sure you know that he's being funny. He's not really saying, you know, that he's the smartest person in the world because he went to Harvard. He's just trying to make you laugh and make you think to knock you out of the rut that you're probably in, that's sending you to talk to a shrink in the first place. Right. I, I mean, let's let's talk about the the title, you know, or that catchphrase that your your dad would say at the dinner table. You know, blank feelings, f feelings, because it, it's an interesting take because it flies in the face of traditional psychotherapy, you know, self help literature that says, you know, no feelings are the the most important thing. Like you should work on managing your feelings, work on being positive, work on being, you know, happy. Uh, so why should we give up on worrying about our feelings so much? Well, the expectation that you could make yourself happy or that you could work out your feelings, I mean, sometimes you can. But usually by the time people came to see me, it was very clear that they couldn't, that there was something about uh, their lives at that time or their personalities or the people they were living with, maybe people they had to live with, that wasn't going to get better. And the expectation that they should be able to control that was making them worse. So shocking them into the idea that maybe as painful as their situation uh, is, was that it wasn't going to be controlled. They would have to think more about making the best of it. Um, would often be uh, lead to a very good, if uh, both a funny and a sad conversation. And uh, when those conversations took place, I and and usually the patient felt they'd been very helpful, and that's what uh, Sarah and I were trying to capture. It was more a segment of conversation, including a lot of what patients brought to the table. Right. And I, I've noticed that in my own life, too, uh, whenever I start focusing on my, like when I'm down, I'm feeling kind of in the, the dumps, like an Eeyore, uh, and I start focusing like, why, why do I feel like this? Uh, I just end up feeling worse <laughs> and, instead of better, which is so weird because I think, yeah, we're, we've been conditioned in our culture to be like little Freuds to ourselves and, and try to figure out the cause of these feelings, but it, it might not be that productive is what you're arguing. Maybe it's worth trying once or twice because sometimes it is productive. But what we don't seem to have is an off switch that says, no, this is not working. This is one of those mysteries that goes beyond what I'm going to figure out or what my shrink is going to figure out. I need to 
turn this off and figure out what I'm going to do about it. Now, people seem to confuse, oh, sorry, people seem to get this notion that if I can get to the root of why I do something, I can stop it. Because um, that's sort of how we're conditioned to solve problems. But just if you, you know, if you are someone who has trouble being faithful in relationships and, you know, you figure out, well, it's because my father was unfaithful. That was easy. That doesn't then flip a switch and make you somebody who is now faithful in relationships. Um, maybe then ruminating on that problem will kind of give you an excuse almost to be unfaithful from here on. Maybe now you're going to get frustrated because you feel like, but I figured it out. I should have control over this. But it's not that simple. So getting to the root of problems feels like then you could find the solution there. But that's not always the case when it comes to bad habits. It's more about learning to manage the problem on a daily basis and trying to find an answer to the problem that will make it go away entirely. So uh, in the beginning of the book, you talk about, and you just talked a little bit about this, Michael, uh, sort of the, the expectations people have. And you discussed that there's a difference between wishes and goals, and that often people make goals that are really wishes uh, for the lives. Can you give some common examples of goals people set for themselves when it comes to their emotional life or just living that are actually wishes? Well, uh, the, the most common one is that they want to make a relationship happier or smoother without stopping to think of why it's not happy or not smooth and whether it is really in their hands at all. So, I'm often saying to people, look, it's understandable that you wish this were better, but it's like your goal is to have good weather. What's the difference? And they say, well, I don't control the weather. That's it. There's an element here you don't control, and you need to think about that. So you're, you're basically, you have to be a little stoic, right? Not being perturbed by things that are outside of your control. Well, you can't exactly help the way you feel about it. If it really hurts, it really hurts. And yeah, you have to be stoic, but it also helps to have values so that you really appreciate that when you're being stoic in a good cause, that that really deserves respect. You're not just sitting there and taking it and, 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 and being passive. You're sitting there and taking it often because you believe in something. You're really trying to make the best of something, and that means sitting still. You know, there was Milton's old line about they also serve who only stand and wait. Well, a lot of times there's nothing you can do, so your highest moral moment sometimes is just enduring a hard time without making it worse. And so, I mean, what would be, okay, so if wishes, you know, a wish would be like, I wish my relationship were, you know, was better or smoother. Um, how can we turn that wish into a more productive goal where we actually can do something, you know, recognize what we have control over um, and don't have control over and focusing on the things we do have control over? Well, especially in family relationships, you know, people often say, I wish I got along with my mother better and think that the way to do that is to have a confrontation or to let her know exactly how she hurt you and and what you need from her in the future. And odds are, if you know you've had a parent, the same parent for 30 years, and you've never gotten along, you're probably you just you're not going to get along now. What you can control is where the conversation goes, what you're willing to talk about, 
how much time you spend together, uh, whether you're going to take the bait and get into arguments. Um, that's what my father's talking about and, and what you were talking about in terms of stoicism. It doesn't feel great to have your mother berate you for something you haven't done, but instead of fighting back, you can calmly change the subject. You can calmly excuse yourself from the room or from the house in general. Um, and it doesn't feel good to have that, to not fight back. But if your goal is to have a peaceable relationship, then there are certain sacrifices that are worth making to keep the peace. Um, and also because you know that if you go to war, if you get into this fight, nobody's going to win. You're never going to change her mind, and she's never going to change yours. Your greater goal is just getting along, not trying to change each other, not trying to win each other over to your point of view, because that's never worked in the past. So that means making those sorts of limits, creating those sorts of boundaries, um, and accepting I'm never going to have a lovey-dovey, you know, sitcom parental relationship, but I can have one that isn't World War III every time a holiday rolls around, and if there are ways to do it that aren't excruciating, like just setting limits, setting time limits, whatever you need to do, then it's worth doing what you need to do to make that possible. We're big ones for inviting people to look for patterns. Usually if somebody is causing you a lot of trouble, or even if you know you caused a lot of trouble by some personal habit of your own, there's lots of evidence that it's ingrained and that it's not easy to change. But there's good reason not to take it too personally and not to hold yourself too responsible so that you can switch over to, okay, it, I don't understand it, but it's bigger than I am. How can I manage it so that it will do the least damage? Right. I think this uh, you, that understanding that some temperaments are inborn and there's not much you can do about it except for managing it. and I know people who have suffered from depression and I feel like they actually beat themselves up even more because they're thinking why why can't I be happy and they do all these things and I, I guess a more productive approach would be like well yeah maybe I'm just by nature an Eeyore uh, but there's some things I can do to manage it and not be like insufferable around people and have a good productive life despite that scientifically that has been almost a revolution in thought over the time of my career. When I started out, we were really thought the, the cure to depression was to understand the issues that were bothering you or get you to stop turning your anger inward, something like that. And that was what a lot of movies were about. But then all this evidence came out that linked it to genetic factors. And the epidemiology of it was that if you had a really bad depression or two, you were almost certain to get another one sooner or later. And it didn't matter whether you got the greatest psychotherapy or had a terrific life. There was still the odds were that you could get another depression. And while that's terribly... You know, it's bad news. We have so little control over something that can cause a lot of pain. The good news was that we've been taking much too much responsibility on ourselves for depression and its recurrence. And that we can fight the negative thoughts of depression by treating it more like it's um, an attack of lupus or an attack of colitis. So, I mean, are you, I'm wondering if you're suggesting is what you do, Michael, sort of cognitive behavioral therapy, or do you even say, think that could be problematic for people because 
I guess the underlying assumption is that you know you can do something about your thoughts, right, with cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, I think it's cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive therapy in the sense that I think philosophy is supposed to be or good thinking about ethics or studying Talmud. You're trying to do what's right and gain self-esteem from that. And when you know you're doing the best to be a decent person and live a life while you're suffering from pain and disability and feel humiliated and are having trouble making a living, uh, that deserves so much respect. I've always thought that's at the center of a lot of ethical and religious thinking. That, and that, that part of it is very, very therapeutic. It's about how to feel better inside when life really sucks. Right. So it's very, very Jobian, very Greek tragedy-like. <laughs> yes, and the Psalms, too. Right. It's important to not... Uh, just, uh, there's some confusion over it in terms of people saying, well, if you resign yourself to the fact that you get depressed, are you then being apathetic? And that's not true at all. It's saying that um, when you accept that you have this disease in your life, that you don't just take it lying down, actually. If the depressive voice tells you you're worthless, you don't then ignore your feelings or hate yourself for having them or try to change them. You just answer back to them. I think that's more of what cognitive behavioral therapy is about in terms of saying back to that voice, I know I'm not useless because today I, I did get out of bed and I was a good parent or I was a good sibling or I was a good daughter or son to my parents. Um, and then the other important part is taking pride in what you can accomplish when you know that you're dealing with an illness. It's a huge deal sometimes just to put your pants on when you're going through a bad period of depression, to put a brush through your hair and leave the house and go to work. And you deserve to give yourself credit for accomplishing those things. Other people do them every day without thinking about it. But when you're sick, it can feel like it takes all the effort you have, you know, down to your bones. And you need to give yourself a pat on the back for being able to accomplish those things. It can, to find the positivity in all the negativity. So, I mean, it sounds like here then you should be, we should be focusing on the process, uh, not so much on the results in terms of feelings, because feelings can, are fleeting and they can change and you don't have much control over that. I think you put your, your finger on it, that we tend to focus on results like happiness or wealth or that have a huge amount of good luck in them. And a lot of the essence of pulling back from that, a lot of the essence of cognitive therapy is to ignore the results as much as we want good results and focus on the process and literally doing your best according to your values. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. 
That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM, masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So uh, you have a chapter called uh, Blank Self-Improvement. Um, very Tyler Durden Fight Club um, title there. But I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I, I do think that this we have live in a culture that's very focused on self-improvement. There's like self-improvement blogs, self-improvement books, podcasts. I mean, I guess you can kind of say we might be a self-improvement podcast. I'm part of the problem. But, but is, <laughs> I mean, does, does this culture, is this culture actually kind of making us miserable in a way? Well, I, 
as, as you know, we don't care if it makes you miserable. <laughs> <laughs> but we think it makes you sick. That if natural, then want to improve. But you always hit a limit. There are some things you just don't do well. Um, I watch my friends at a certain age, whatever their timing in their running or their weight or whatever is going to get worse, not better. And sooner or later, you really need to focus on the process, what you do with what you've got. That's a much deeper moral dimension. So, again, I think it's what you said earlier. We tend to focus by human nature on the result and to really judge ourselves fairly and constructively, we have to continually force ourselves to think about what we've got to contend with. It's just another way, really, of saying the serenity prayer and trying to turn it into a procedure. Also, the problem with so much written self-help seems to be that it puts the onus for improvement squarely on the reader. Um, and, and ask you to take responsibility for so many things you can't control. So that when you're not then happy after reading the advice, it feels like your fault. But, you know, as we've been saying, happiness isn't something you control entirely. I mean, an example we always use is you can wake up early, you know, exercise, work on your aspiration collage or whatever the secret calls it, decide that day you're going to be happy and meet goals, take one step out of the house, and then a bird craps on your head. You know, now you're not happy, but you didn't tell the bird where to eat breakfast or use the toilet that morning. It's not your responsibility that you don't feel happy anymore. But you can feel like, uh, this is, why can't I be happy? I did all these things today. Why am I letting this bring me down? You're letting it bring you down because it's gross. It's a terrible start to the day. And it seems like so many self-help books make it seem like your happiness is in your own hands. And that's so not fair to people, to readers, to anybody to take that on. Your happiness is mostly linked to luck and you can be the best person you can and you can do the best you can but expecting to be happy to be able to make yourself happy is probably just going to make you miserable listening to you two talk about this uh i want to go back to you michael you kind of refer to this this isn't really so much you know psych cognitive behavioral therapy it's just good philosophy towards life i mean you talked to when i was hearing you talk it reminded me of uh i guess those inscriptions on the temple of delphi Right, like know thyself, and then like moderation in all things. Um, it sounds like that's what you're advocating. It's like know what your limits are. Know that you're not going to be able to get thinner at a you know certain age, or you're not going to be as fast or athletic past a certain age. Um, and then working with what you got. Don't try to exceed beyond what you're capable of doing, possibly. Well, we we certainly thank you. You need to try to stretch your limits and that, you know, so many great things in life that, uh, <laughs> that younger people achieve are because they have a real interest and talent and take it to the limit. But I think it's equally true that there is always a limit. And again, it's how you shift gears, how you recognize when you reach that limit and and shift gears and decide, okay, this isn't my fault. I'd like to take it further. Everybody has told me, um, you know, it's sort of like what they say about the Red Sox, <laughs> especially around spring training. And all the sports writers are talking about everybody's potential. 
it must drive those guys crazy. <laughs> um, so going back to this idea of where we people have a tendency to psychoanalyze themselves and trying to figure out the root of their problems. Like we ask why questions, like why do I cheat? Why do I eat that chocolate cake? Why do I, you know, why do I have an anger problem? Um, you guys argue that we should be asking, instead of why, we should be asking how. Uh, what do you all mean by that? We just mean that you ask how do you deal with it. Okay. If there is some cause that you can manage, you know, somebody discovers a, a pill that will change your fat metabolism and you gain weight from that cake because of some biochemistry that's known, oh, give me that pill, I'd love it. But until that arrives, some people gain weight and some people don't. But at some point or other, it was probably a survival trait that the people who gained weight would get through the winter famine better because their bodies hang on to fat. A lot of it seems to link up to um, evolutionary things that I mean a trait may cause you a lot of misery. But still, if it helps uh, a large number of people survive, it tends to remain in the gene pool. Well, whatever it is, it's a mystery, and it's usually beyond us at some point, particularly in medicine. Now, doctors, too, and therapists have a lot of trouble with that point. We feel responsible for finding an answer and coming up with answers. And what is harder for us, for everybody, I think, is to recognize when there is no answer and shift to this, so what do you do then? Now, also, when people, especially people that have problems with addiction uh, and want to ask why, it's usually just a tactic to delay doing anything that's actually constructive. I mean, you can try and figure out why you drink forever. You might not come with an, up with an answer. What's more important is that you figure out how to manage your drinking now. Um, and at a certain point, too, you can try and get to the bottom of why can't I eat as much as other people I know? Why is it that one bite of cake will cause me to gain 25 pounds? And it might be because, like my dad said, you have peasant genes that hold on to weight <laughs> with a metaphorical white fist. Um, but if you're someone who has those issues, you have to come to a point where you think, I can either manage my diet better, I can either have a crazy diet where I only eat 500 calories a day so I can be the weight that I want, or I can have a healthy diet that works for me and accept, how, you know, what is the best I'm going to look, what is the best weight I can achieve that doesn't make my schedule crazy and, you know, make it impossible to spend time with friends because I'm on a cleanse every other day of the of the week. That's the limit you have to determine for yourself. But at a certain point, it's not worth trying to figure out why anymore um, because that's probably just letting you procrastinate. You just have to make your own decisions about what's best for you, what will work best for you, um, and what will help you get your problem to a point that you feel comfortable with. So I imagine there's people who are listening who might be in a funk of some sort, and they know what they need to do. Right, they know the things they sh the processes they should focus on to to manage it. But again, like that emotion is very it's like a motivating factor in our lives, right? If you don't feel like doing something, then it's hard to like do something you know you're supposed to do, even though you don't feel like it. 
So I'm curious, do you have any like advice on uh, bootstrapping yourself, right? Even though you might not feel like getting out of bed, um, how do you get yourself to do that? You know, because it's the right thing to do or it'll help you out and have help you have a functional life. Well, what I think we've learned from the, from the behavioral therapist is that you try to do it with other people. That you try to let other people into your life, whether it's a friend or a spouse or, or a therapist, and work with them to create a schedule and get very, very specific about what you need to do. And then check with them through the day about whether you're doing it. If it's really severe, what that's about all they do in um, day hospital treatment is they walk with you through your day, doing their best to get you up, out, eating, and doing things one after the other. And very often, just having that person at your elbow is just what you need. You really want to do it. You just can't quite get up the energy and that other person gives you the energy and then you start to build a habit and do it at the same time with the same person every day. And before you know it, you're moving. That's important too, not to beat yourself up and say, you know, come on, get yourself out of bed. Don't be a loser. You know, let that negativity seep into motivation you might have. It's more thinking of what what are the important goals for me? What kind of person do I want my actions to reflect? So if getting out of bed means providing for your family, then that's the motivation that you can use. And by getting out of bed, like I said, you give yourself an enormous amount of credit. But it's acknowledging, yes, it is very, I'm very sick right now. I feel really down. This is going to be really hard. But these are really important goals for me to set. It's very important for me to be this kind of person, both for myself or for my family, as an example, for my kids. Um, and if I can't meet those goals, I know that I did my best to meet them. I'm not going to beat myself up. But there's a very good reason for me to meet these goals and to ignore what my mood is telling me and press on either way. So uh, you have a chapter called Blank Fairness. And I think there's this, I think in a lot of people, there's this very ingrained idea that, you know, life should be fair. Um, and I think this could be the cause of a lot of frustration, uh, depression, cause of anger, because even uh, I think a lot of people make this sort of um, like hidden bargains with people, like saying, if I did this for you, then like you should do something for me. And then when that person doesn't do something for you, uh, you get upset and angry. Um but how, so how do you get rid of that ingrained idea in your head that life should be fair? Because it seems like that's probably the root cause of a lot of angst and anger in people's lives. Uh, well, one thing we all do is we watch a lot of TV and movies where the bad guy really gets it. <laughs> and, and one reason I think we do that is because that's the only place we're going to get that satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the the rest, uh, you know, getting philosophical with somebody else who understands why you're angry and why you're outraged, um, but also understands that if you do anything, it will make things worse. Uh, that helps. Um, 
that's about the only way you can do it. I mean, I think we run the risk every day of our yearning for justice getting us into trouble. I, road rage is the most obvious example. And and it builds up. And I guess one of the less constructive things we do is sort of harbor resentments and we blame whoever the authority is for not giving us a better world, usually the president or the governor or somebody, uh, which is why uh, even the most popular politician has usually become a goat after eight or 12 years in office. <laughs> but it's hard for us to step back. And I think that's one of the reasons it's good to, to sort of study philosophy or study scripture as a way of contemplating the unfairness of the world and thinking positively, what does a good person do with that? Since we can't often uh, do good by taking arms or even sometimes by speaking up, how can we do good? I think that was something Moynihan raised when he said sometimes helping poor people with money in certain situations won't do any good. It'll do more harm than good. How do you do good when you're helpless? Sometimes it's a matter of waiting until the right opportunity. You can't do anything right now, but you don't give up. You're waiting. So going back to this idea of relationships, um, and I think... Sarah, you mentioned it too, this idea that if uh, you have a bad relationship with your parent and you decide one day this Thanksgiving, like I'm going to have an intervention with them and just like let them know how they've made me feel. And I think that's a very popular idea that this will solve problems, like having that open and frank discussion with folks. But it seems like in the book, you all argue that sometimes that might not be productive at all. And maybe you should just not do that. Yeah, my favorite joke in the book, and I, it's not mine, it's my dad's, uh, is in the context of describing couples therapy, um, which is a little crass, but it's, nothing describes it better, uh, where he says that people often go, you know, to couples therapy because they feel basically having a fight with a referee where you get to unload everything about your spouse that bothers you, um, but that doing so and venting like that is a lot like venting intestinal gas and that it provides you with a moment of intense catharsis but then poisons the air for you and everyone around you. So in having venting to a parent is a lot, is exactly the same. You can feel this amazing catharsis of I finally let him or her know what he did to me, how he made me feel, uh, but it's just going to make that person defensive and angry. If it's the kind of parent who feels like a victim all the time, you're making you're reinforcing that narrative of my child is always attacking me and doesn't appreciate me it's not going to further anyone your goal certainly of creating peace it's not going to i don't think ever in the history of time has a parent said oh my goodness i realized i've been wrong this whole time i'm a terrible human being that, that's not what occurs it's more i realize that you're a terrible human being because you're so cruel to me and you would say these things to me and it just it sends things off of a cliff uh, so people would like to believe that the airing of feelings makes for a more peaceful relationship. But it's, again, like the airing of gas, it just makes for a poisonous atmosphere. What, what Al-Anon helps people to do is 
if they can control the negative feelings, is to share more positive observations. You can have a fairly even-tempered and more pleasant discussion about somebody's alcoholism if you're really raising it as an issue that you're asking them about. You're asking them to define their own standards, to look at it themselves. You're not um, trying to, you're not using phrases like bad choices or how do you think that makes people feel. You're trying to stay away from negative emotions and run a sort of forceful seminar on how you think about this so that you can take proper care of yourself. That um, a good intervention uh, can be fairly punchy if it's not angry. I like that. Um, well, Michael and, and Sarah, this has been a great conversation. We can get into more because uh, you, you guys, I love how, I mean, the, the brash, irreverent humor of the book is just, it's funny but I love the practical tips in it. Uh, where can people find out more about your work and the book? Um, well, we have a website that is fxckfeelings.com um, where we answer reader questions for advice, not as frequently as we'd like to because we've been first working in the first book and now working on another book. Um, but people can, through the website, contact us and um, we will answer your questions eventually, I promise. Um, we're also on Facebook, which is FXCK Feelings, and Twitter, and somebody more savvy than me is probably running an Instagram or a Tumblr. I, I'm, I always say that if there was such a thing as antisocial networking, I'd be all over it. Right. Basically a hermit. <laughs> but we do have people to help us out with these things, so we should be all over the place. Great. Well, Sarah and Michael Bennett, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the questions. We really enjoyed them. Yeah. My guests, they were Michael and Sarah Bennett. They're the authors of the book. F feelings, and you can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And you can find out more information about their website at fxckfeelings.com. As I said earlier, if you want to check the show notes out, you can find that at aom.is/slash feelings, all one word. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.